0: And welcome back to another edition of The Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron Goodman.
1: And I am Sam Saskin, and we are very happy to be with you here right now. So this is episode two of The Alonzo Bet. If you didn't catch episode one, make sure to go back to uh, the first episode on whatever podcast platform you're on, whether it be iTunes or Spotify, and check out episode one, what you're going to get Out of episode one is sort of an introduction of ourselves, who we are, why we're making this podcast, you know, what this podcast is about, which is mainly baseball and some of the statistical sides of it and the fun sides of it, and maybe some other current events in sports as well. And you're also going to hear the origin story of why we're called the Alonzo Bet. And then finally, you'll catch the beginning of our MLB season preview where we preview the AL West division for you. Later in today's podcast we'll be continuing that series previewing the NL Central division for you but what are we going to do to start the podcast for them
0: Aaron? Well we want to start off right now we want to talk about some things happening in sports today. This is basically today news and uh, we're going to stretch it all around but first as you guys know if you listen to the first episode if you Haven't listened to the first episode? You're about to find out. Sam Saskin is a massive Mets fan. This guy hails from the city, right? He's grown up for the Mets his whole life. His parents are from Queens. It makes sense. And this kid lives and dies with them as well, by the way, as the Jets... And the Knicks, although I've well, had a,
1: I've had a pretty hard life, as you can tell.
0: I've uh, I've seen I've seen you up on the Knicks a little bit lately, but of all these teams, that's, the, that's blasphemy. The Mets reign supreme, and there was bad news out of Mets camp today. Why don't you start us off, Joe?
1: Yeah, so I was doing a little work up in my room. Uh, since we're in quarantine, I was working on a, on a physics problem. I've been working on my lab. And I take a break and peek at my phone, and I see an update from ESPN, and that's that Noah Syndergaard has been diagnosed with a tear of his ulnar collateral ligament and will require Tommy John surgery. He will certainly miss the entire 2020 season and will likely not be ready for the start of the 2021 season. This is a... Devastating blow to the it Mets. Hurts. Hurts. I'm, I'm trying to put on a brave face for you guys right mm-hmm. now, but I'm really not exaggerating when I tell you I had a pit in my stomach for the next 30 minutes. I called my dad. Yeah, we talked it out. It, you know, this was a really optimistic season for Mets fans. We really thought we had a team that was going to come together and compete this year. And losing Cinder Garg is really tough. I know a lot of people sort of see Syndergaard as a pitcher that had a down year last year. But if you look at some of the underlying statistics, he got very unlucky last year. And he's just a guy that's been one of the top 10 to 15 pitchers in the game for Mm -hmm. really the last three years or four years since he's come into the league.
0: Right. And really incredible stuff. Sam and I actually got to see Syndergaard throw. We went to the Mets last year and we got to see Syndergaard throw. Maybe that was two years ago now, actually. Yeah. And boy, did he look nasty. When he has it going... His fastball moves all over the plate. He, he can make it come in. He can make it go out. He's got off-speed pitches that work well. He really, really I is mean, a good pitcher. He,
1: I mean, for basically his whole career, I think he's almost been judged as an underachiever I because agree. his stuff it's is so basically number one or two in the game. Maybe you'd say Cole is better stuff, right. but outside of that... You really think of Syndergaard as the guy with the most plus-plus stuff in the game. And so people think of him as an underachiever, even though he's really been a top 10 to 15 pitcher in baseball for his entire career. And
0: you you can even argue him down a little bit from 15. But he has been tremendous his whole career. And Sam is speaking to this. He's an underachiever when he's been as good or better based on how long he's actually done it than Nola in his career. And people, I think, look at Nola and him maybe on the same tier right now, and that's because he kind of gets that discount for people thinking he should be so, so good. And
1: and I will say that, that, you know, you dig into Noah's stats a bit. He has been a pitcher that's been tremendously hurt by the Mets, really subpar defense. For mm-hmm. for basically five years now, mm-hmm. the the Mets have not been fielding a good defensive team for basically half a decade now. It's something that Sandy Alderson didn't take super seriously as a general manager and building. It's not it's something he valued just a, a lot. Sign of
0: ineptitude. Well, in I, I actually opinion.
1: I actually think you know I think that is one flaw that Sandy had, and I think it sort of grew out of the early years of the Moneyball era with the A's, where you know the A's had all these. Uh, Insights into how to evaluate players one of the places they might have gone a little wrong is they devalue defense Mm -hmm. or I think what at the time they noticed was that Defense was not that valuable because it was hard to quantify. I think in the years since then we've gotten a lot better at quantifying defense So now it's something that teams value a lot more because we know better who's good at it. Right.
0: Um, and in general even if something is valuable it's, it's more valuable to know about something that is slightly less valuable with some certainty than it is to know about a slightly more valuable attribute with absolutely no certainty. That's right. Which the, was the case in 2001.
1: That's right, because if you actually think about how you as a team is going to exploit some knowledge, you need to be able to evaluate something in order to exploit it. But anyway, obviously, the Syndergaard news is terrible news for the Mets. I mean, he was going to be number two on their staff behind DeGrom, But he was going to be a massive part of the season. Mm -hmm. Fangraphs had him projected for, I believe, four point six WAR this year on their depth on their depth charts app on their depth charts projection, which is a combination of Steamer and Zips, as we discussed in last week's episode.
0: So basically, that's theoretically okay. So theoretically, you'd say that costs him four point six wins, but that's not really how it works because someone steps up and slots in for him. If they can get two three wins out of that guy, the difference could only be a win or two. And it may not even translate if they get lucky in a few games, right?
1: And that's exactly my hope. So I was in a pick of despair earlier today. <laughs> but I'm always an optimist when it comes to the Mets, even though they've given me no reason to be. Mm-hmm. So I did some searching on the Mets depth charts page on Fangraphs, And I wanted to find some silver lining in this. I wanted to basically figure out what, what is this really going to cost the Mets? So what I did is I went on the Mets depth charts page on Fangraphs, and basically what this page does is it projects a certain amount of playing time for all the players on the Mets, and then using Zips and Steamer projections projects uh, what the each of these Mets uh, wins above replacement is going to be. And for those of you who don't know what wins above replacement is or have heard this term used sort of all over the baseball world these days and don't really get what it means, we're actually going to have a primer on what war is later up, in this episode. Yeah. So this episode. so make sure to keep on listening, but all you have to all, all you really need to know right now while I talk about it is it's a projection for how valuable a, a player is going to be and it's basically the number is how many wins that player is mm-hmm. worth over a replacement level player. So, Noah Syndergaard was projected for 4.6 wins above replacement and 193 innings as a starter for the Mets this year. This means that these 193 innings that Noah Syndergaard was going to pitch are now going to be redistributed among other Mets pitchers who are basically all worse than him.
0: Probably, if you were able to track down those innings, which you never could, but it's an interesting thought exercise, probably over 16 or 17 different pitchers, those 193. Yeah,
1: exactly, innings. because I think you can assume that the starter that will replace him will not pitch as many innings right. because he's not as good and doesn't go deep in the games.
0: And so, that's why, by the way, that's just a small example of why stats are amazing. These advanced stats are great, but like they'll never encapsulate everything because you couldn't possibly track down those seventeen pitches that replaced Cindergard and be able to calculate what the actual difference in WAR was. So these are all projections, a couple games of luck, Sam. That's all they need to make yeah. this up.
1: So, so exactly. So basically, what I'm gonna maybe roughly look at is right now the they have the Fangraphs has the Mets rotation in number of innings projected as Degrom. Sindergaard, Stroman, Porcello, Mats, and then Michael Waka. where Rick Porcello and Michael Waka are newcomers to the team. They were brought on by Brogy Van Wagenen as rotation depth to the team. And really, at this point, we're quite happy that he viewed it necessary to bring on rotation depth because we lost one of our starting pitchers.
0: Even and though you were questioning the Michael Walker signing earlier. That's right, signing right, but
1: now I'm a big Michael Waka fan <laughs> because he <laughs> is – he, he he's is getting,
0: clearly he's probably eat
1: he's the, he's the, the one who is now going to eat a lot of these Syndergaard innings, or at least who is projected to. I think you could see a prospect like David Peterson maybe come up and end up throwing a lot of these innings. But right now, it's clearly the plan to have Michael Walker as the fifth starter. So if you take the 56 innings that Michael Waka is projected to throw, let's now project him to throw 100 more innings and say he took about half of Syndergaard's mm-hmm. innings. Michael Walker's projected for 0.6 WAR in these 56 innings. So if you give him 100 more, that's about 1.2, 1.2 WAR yeah. more. So now we're about three and a half wins below Cindergaard. Mm-hmm. Now assume the Mets bullpen picks up another 50 innings. You have to assume with like Diaz, Lugo, Betances, they're going to perform reasonably well.
0: But you also have to consider if you're giving 100 innings to um, the back of the bullpen or the front end of the bullpen there. They're not going that deep in games, so you actually need to look less at Diaz and Lugo, who are not going to eat the majority of those innings, and more at their swingmen and long relievers, who actually will eat the majority of those innings. I'd say two thirds of the innings outside of what uh, they end up throwing. I the think series. that's Sorry. I think that's
1: a, f- a fair assessment Aaron, and it really cuts deep into the optimism I'm trying to present here. <laughs> But, um, uh, I'm
0: sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I'm not looking at the war right now, actually.
1: But, um, let's say we get another half win out of the bullpen in those innings, and basically what we're looking at is a three win difference in sort of the projected wins above replacement for the Mets. And three wins is a big issue. If the Mets had won three more games last year, they would have been the second wild card team instead of out of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these three wins are something that are very variable in projection and really random luck throughout the season could easily make up for three wins. So just because I was very optimistic about the Mets before and now they lost Syndergaard doesn't mean I think they now have no chance at the playoffs. Mm -hmm. I think they're still a pretty good team that's going to contend for one of those wildcard spots, but I do think it deals a significant blow to their chances in the NL East. I think they are no longer sort of up there with the Nationals and Braves as the clear top tier. Mm-hmm. I think they've now dropped below the Nationals and Braves, and we'll get into this in more detail when we do our NL East preview. But...
0: And for reference, just real quick, um, Zips was only one game off on the Mets last year. They had him at 87. They ended up winning 86. But at the worst, Zips was off like 8 or 12 wins. And in I think the median number an absolute value of difference between their projections and wins was something around two and a half of three. Um, so they're, they're kind of in that ballpark, but, or sorry, the mean two and a half. Three, the mean and the a, point and point actually
1: on, on that, on that topic, Aaron, there's an extremely interesting article on fan graphs that was published yesterday. Oh, by, that's, that's where I saw this yeah, actually. It was by, actually. It's a great article. By Dan Zimborski, who is the creator of Zips. I don't know if you knew that. Mm-hmm. And, Basically, what this I article, did not.
0: That's what I tuned into the show for.
1: <laughs> hey, baby! And basically, what this article is about is sort of taking Zips' projections and looking back on how accurate they were. And he sort of talks about which teams he was more accurate in predicting versus less accurate in predicting. And I think it's a really interesting article for people who are sort of wondering how accurate are these projections.
0: So this Noah Syndergaard news is absolutely devastating. Um, we, we mentioned a couple times Tommy John, and I actually just want to mention this to you guys. We might cut it cause it might be boring, but like, I, I actually think this is really cool. So Tommy John surgery and Sam mentioned it's a replacement of the UCL, which is the ulnar collateral ligament. It's in your elbow. Ulnar. 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 Well, sometimes you need to add vowels to something to just make it sound. Right. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so the ulnar collateral ligament, somewhere in your elbow, which is a massive part of pitching for players, they take something out of your forearm or hamstring or foot, another ligament, and just string it up in your elbow. It was this weird experimental surgery that they did in 1974 for a pitcher named Tommy John. The doctor was Dr. Frank Joe who was just like...
1: Wait, so then why is it called Tommy John surgery? You got it, because he had it first.
0: Wow. Frank Job was just like, hey, uh, you used to throw pretty fast. Now you throw pretty slow. That sucks for me because I'm a Yankees fan. So I'm just going to take something out of your knee and see if this works. And it did. I just then, want to be
1: clear. I know why it's called Tommy John surgery. I was just doing a bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, if you, and you will learn that soon enough. Say I was always doing a bit. So originally Job put uh, Tommy John's chances of coming back at 1 in 100. He obviously came back and pitched for like at least 10 more years after that, 13 more years after that. And interestingly enough, do you want to take a guess who the first pitcher ever elected to the Hall of Fame who got Tommy John was? It's a very, very oh. random stat, folks, but it's kind of fun. First pitcher ever to be elected to the Hall of Fame who got Tommy John.
1: That's hard. I, yeah, I, I totally give up. I don't even know where to I understand.
0: The answer is John Smoltz.
1: Ooh, Smoltzie! Pretty
0: fun.
1: See, I do Great pitcher. I don't think he'd be a fan of the pod. No, Smoltzie Smult-
0: likes the old school style of the <laughs> yeah. game. We're a little bit uh, too cutting edge for the Smultzy. hey. But
1: maybe when we make it big, we're gonna bring Smoltzie on the pod, and we're gonna talk. We're, we're gonna convince him to become a stat
0: head. And I'm just gonna say this right here to help the case. Smoltzie was my second favorite player growing up. I had a hitter. Yeah,
1: as, a, as a Mets fan who was tormented year by year by the Braves, I was not a big fan well, of Smoltz.
0: So I had a hitter and a pitcher, and like I wasn't as much of like a team sport, guy as I just like loved baseball. I was always a D-backs fan. I was actually at Game 7 of 2001 World Series. Yeah, but, but were you
1: there for the last play? Well, that's a story we'll tell a different <laughs> time. We'll
0: tell that at a different time. But I loved Vladimir Guerrero, and I loved John Smoltz. The guy just – he was like Greg Maddox, but with a fastball. It was sick to watch, and we hope one day we can have him on the pile. So that's a lot of info on Syndergaard. Eat it up. That's Mets content coming your way. That's baseball content coming your way as soon as we get it. We're, like, thirsting right now. As soon as we get a drop of baseball content, we just eat it.
1: And, guys, I'm sorry, like – Anything that has to do with the Mets, I'm going to try to keep this an MLB mm-hmm. podcast, it but it, it I, it. I'm just going to have to talk about it. It's not something I can control about myself. It's just something I need to go through. And and really, this was my first chance to, chance to vent because Aaron and I didn't uh-huh. really have a chance to talk about this yet today. And my dad and I vented a little bit, but I really needed to just get this all out.
0: And now you've heard it. And
1: now I've convinced myself. It's gonna be okay. The Mets are still probably the World Series favorites this year, so we're fine.
0: As I promised, episode one, you know, I'll be keeping Sam in check. We got to talk about the league, but another thing we're going to talk about is all sports. So there's only one other story I actually want to get to today. Uh, just that I don't know if you guys saw this. This is a couple days old now, I guess. But Jamal Murray, shooting guard for the Nuggets, point guard, shooting guard, kind of a, a hybrid there. He's coming off a couple really surprising, really, really good seasons for the Nuggets. Uh, Obviously, this one's a little postponed, but he apparently posted a graphic video of his girlfriend giving him oral sex on his Instagram. And the claim now is that he was hacked. I have no reason not to believe that. But these questions come up a lot. What's going on (laughs) What's your password, <laughs> Jamal like, you, It's not that hard to have somebody not hack your Twitter or also to not accidentally post videos. I know it happens to everybody. I've actually not seen this. Apparently, she asked people not to go look for it. Um... That is a consideration yeah. in looking and, for it. And but we also, are also
1: going to recommend that our listeners don't go for
0: it. That's uh, 100%. It's totally inappropriate if it was a hack, even if it wasn't. If she doesn't want people to see it, they shouldn't. But what are you doing, Jamal Murray? Uh, I hope everything is coming out from this. It turns out okay. And also, I hope the NBA season is back. On the yeah, this is what time. this is what
1: happens when NBA players have too much time on their
0: Yeah, head. exactly.
1: exactly.
0: Um, All right, so now we kind of we kind of got current events done. But what we want to do here, last time, if you remember, we explained that we're making league by league projections for the MLB this season. And so to kick us off, we actually started by explaining Zips and Steamers, which are two of the most popular projection sites. Today, we want to introduce one more tool that we use on a regular basis when we're evaluating players, and that tool is called WAR. Sam alluded to it earlier. It's wins above replacement, And in general, it explains how many more wins a, t- a player's team has with him on the roster over some random or replacement-level player. But the math is a little more complicated, so I'm going to let Sam get into the details of what War is here.
1: Sure, and, and I think that's a good, good intro to what Wins Above Replacement is trying to do as a stat, because anytime we talk about a stat, it's important to think about what is the purpose of the stat. And what the purpose of War is is to basically assign a value to a player as to how valuable they were to their team that year. And what Aaron means by a replacement level player is basically, what if you had replaced this player with someone who's basically a fringe major leaguer? So someone who teeters between being a A player and sort of being the 25th man, 25th man on an MLB roster. So the question is, how do you boil the value of a player down to a single number? Because there are so many different parts of their game. And basically what War does is it... Uh, separates their game into two main parts, their offensive component and their defensive component. And let's start with the offensive component. The offensive component of a player, uh, and and for now I'm just going to be talking about uh, hitting war. There's a separate way of evaluating a pitcher's war, but that's a bit more complicated and it's maybe something we'll leave for another episode. But for a hitter, uh, let's start with their offensive component. Basically what war does is it takes... Every batted ball event of the season, and sorry, not just batted ball event, but every sort of plate appearance. so whether you walk, strike out, get a single double triple homer, or get hit by pitch, all of these different events and assigns a value to each one of these events. So over you know all the at bats over the last few years in the major leagues, you can average how valuable each of these outcomes are, like a home runs on average worth two runs or. A single is on average worth half a run. And then it figures out how many runs you've added to your team through all these events. And then it can convert these runs to a number of wins. And the rule for this is typically that a team that scores uh, 10 more runs in a season wins on average one more game. So 10 runs equals a win above replacement. So it takes all of these offensive events and it assigns a certain number of wins you're getting there. It then adjusts these runs somewhat for what park you play in. So, for instance, if you did really well at Coors Field, you get a bit of a penalty. But if you did really well in a hitter's park like AT sorry, in a pitcher's park like AT&T Park, then you get a little boost from more because your stats are more impressive there. And then it also adds in your base running component, and this is also part of your offensive war. So it adds in things like stealing a base, going first for first to third on a single, going second to home on a single, going first to home on a double. These types of small base running uh, things that really help your team out and add runs to your team, but don't necessarily show up in a typical base running stat like steals. And that's your offensive components of war. There's also a defensive component of war, and this is basically boiled down into two things. One is how well you perform on defense, and there are sort of these advanced stats called UZR and defensive runs saved that are used to sort of show how many runs you save your team as a defender. Now, one thing to note about defensive stats is that they are far from perfect, and they're way more rudimentary than, say, an offensive stat like Mm -hmm. WRC+. Mm -hmm. So when you look at defensive stats in War, you have to take them with a grain of salt. And one general rule for defensive stats that are good to abide by is that these defensive stats take about 3 years to stabilize. And what I mean by that is that it really takes 3 years worth of data of of how well of how uh, good someone is at at defending to say some say confidently that that is sort of their skill level.
0: Right. So this is just like a we don't want to go too far into this because it can get a little nerdy and we don't want to get too bad, but it's just basic like data analysis. So when values jump up and down, you don't have any idea what the true like uh, value of that quantity is. And so what you need is you need some level of either enough ups and downs so you can see what the middle of that shit is or you need a period of quiescence or a period of stability where you see exactly what that number is going to be and that's what sam's saying takes roughly three years in defensive but for some players it takes more because some years they're good and then some years they're bad this is what happens when players who are human play a sport some years they come out there and they play really really well because they have the skills to do so but some days they come out there and they forget how to play the game. It looks like it's crazy.
1: Yeah, so I, I think Aaron's giving a great example of like why these defensive stats are very useful to have and give some insight into who's good at defense, but they're also to be taken with a grain of salt and not quoted like every week. Oh, this was the best defender this week because the stats on that time frame are meaningless. And then so. These defensive stats are used for war. And then the final important uh, sort of theory of war to think about from a defensive perspective is something called the positional adjustment. And basically what this says is, hey, it's way harder to be a catcher or a shortstop or a center center fielder than it is to be a first baseman. So we should give you more credit if you're a really good player at shortstop than if you're a really good player at first base. Because it's way hard. I mean, you just see – there are way more just sluggers at first base than there are at shortstop. Right. But to be able to be you know, a top hitter in baseball at shortstop or center field and then also be able to play that position well, that's way more valuable to a team because it's way harder to find.
0: Right. I mean, the name of the status wings above replacement. So when you're looking at replacing a player, you can't say, oh, well, you know, Paul Goldschmidt didn't hit that great last year. Um and Buster Posey didn't hit that great last year. But one of them plays a premium position. So at the end of the day, when you're looking at replacing a player, you have to replace them at the position they play, and the talent pool is different for every position. Some years you say first base is deep, catcher is deep, third base is deep. We never say catcher is deep. (laughs) It's never deep. But the outfield may be deep some years. And at the end of the day, you have to replace them in their position. And it doesn't go as granular as like center field, for example. It really is just outfield, right?
1: Well, no. Center field gets a, a bigger positional adjustment. Actually, the center field positional adjustment is positive, and the corner outfield is negative.
0: Oh, that's great. See, that I didn't know that. That's great to know. Sam bringing the knowledge here. So, it actually goes position by position and says this position was so a, hard to find a good hitter at this year that we're going to give you credit for your defense. We're also going to boost what we're giving you for offense because... It's more valuable at that position since no one else can do it and play the position.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. Now that we've gotten that recap of war, I think we're ready to move in to our NL Central predictions. Just a reminder, we're giving you those in-depth analysis and breakdowns of advanced statistics so that you can better make your own predictions and you can better evaluate what you're watching on the field every day. So, for the NL Central, I think we have a really interesting division here, Sam. I think we got four teams at the top who could easily win it if things break their way, especially in a shortened season. I don't know what's going to happen here.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting division, and I think it's especially interesting compared to the AL West, which we did in our last episode where we agreed on pretty much every mm-hmm. spot in the division here I could definitely see some major disagreement within the top four teams as you said I think we're definitely gonna disagree uh, I think we're definitely gonna agree on number five
0: I would say that's likely yeah but
1: but you know let's just jump right into it so give me your your one through five and then I'll give you
0: mine all right so right off the bat Sam I got the cards at number one. I got the Brewers at number two. I got the Cubs at number three. The Reds at four. And then I think we can all agree the Pirates bringing up the backside. Okay,
1: so I was right. The Pirates are the only team we (laughs)
0: agree on. So
1: I had the Cubs at number one. Aaron had them third. Okay. I have the Reds at number two. Aaron had them fourth. I have the Cardinals at number 3 Aaron had them winning the division and then I have the Brewers at number 4 and Aaron had them at coming second in the division and then the Pirates at 5. So basically we flip-flopped the the top 2. Exactly. Three, so four. 1 yeah. and
0: 3 for us was flipped and 2 and 4 for us was flipped. Yeah,
1: very interesting. So I guess to have a to have a sensible order to go through those these teams, let's just go with uh with my ordering.
0: Oh, why? Just cuz your order is definitely the correct one? Well, I mean Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you start me off with the Cubs, Sam. What do you like about them? What don't you like about them? So the Cubs, what I like about
1: them, I think their biggest strength is just that lineup. I think they have three guys on that team who maybe I wouldn't call favorites to win the NL MVP, but who I just certainly would not be shocked if they won. And Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, and Javi Baez. I think... um, I think the lineup just pretty deep throughout and I just I see them coming out of the division. If you had to pinpoint a weakness for them, I'd say it's probably some pitching depth. Uh but I think the I think the staff's good enough to support
0: the lineup and get mm-hmm. it through. What what are your thoughts? Because you clearly aren't as high on them right. as I am. Well, so I think this goes to the nature of this NL Central division this year, but these are razor-thin margins we're talking about. I essentially agree with you. I said their strength is veteran talent, and what I mean by that is when you look through the lineup, they have guys who've done it in the past, who've proven they can do it, and who are young enough to continue doing it. And Sam mentioned the big three there, that's Bryant, Rizzo, and Baez, but don't forget after that, you've got Schwarber, who swings a hot bat. Wilson Contreras is a top catcher in all of baseball. Yeah. Jason Hayward, for as awful a hitter as he can be, is still probably the second or third best defensive right fielder in baseball. And so all through this lineup, they have guys who know how to get the job done and who've been there before. That's great for them. But where you say, if I had to pinpoint a weakness, it'd be pitching. I say, Jesus, look at the pitching. It's brutal. So the starting pitching is not so bad. I'm big on you, Darvish, this season. John Lester, I think, is getting forgotten as an absolute workhorse, although he is going the route of Rick Porcello at this time. Oh,
1: I, I don't think that's quite fair. Like, I think Lester
0: is... What do you mean? A, I mean, he's projecting through 175 innings of 4.55 ERA baseball. That's Rick Porcello to a T.
1: Yeah, but I guess I still think of Lester as, like, a better pitcher than Rick Porcello. Yeah, well,
0: I, 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 can, I, I, yeah, I think about I, him that I, way, but...
1: I'm more confident in Lester... Sort of putting up those stats that like he's projected for than I am in Rick Porcello, and that's someone that's that's as someone who wants to be confident in Rick right. Porcello because okay, he's but the their
0: board. their starting rotation is not the issue here. Their starting rotation has big big question marks in in Quintana and Lester. I think I don't know what we're gonna get out of them this year. They both could pitch like fours, right? They, but but that's what
1: they. I mean, Lester is their four, so like if he pitches as a four, great.
0: Yeah, I guess. I, I like Hendricks, but then don't forget. Their five is Kyle Hen- is a uh, Tyler Chatwood. I'm sorry, Kyle Hendricks is should be there too. Yeah, you Hendrix Darvish and Hendricks are the only two I trust. But I then mean, you that's get a, that's down a there. Good top two. You get down there and you're pitching Tyler Chatwood, and here's where it gets worse. Oh well, your starter's out of the game, and we got to go into this bullpen where yeah, maybe you can believe in Craig Kimbrel. I certainly took him on my fantasy squad this year because I got a value on him, Sam. But after that.
1: Didn't you, didn't you literally say last week not to draft Craig Kimball? I
0: did, I did, <laughs> I did. But you have to understand, people, that it's all about value. So where Kimball was going in most drafts, I would say never take him. But if I'm going to get him in, like, my third to last overall pick, well, that's a good value for me. I'm going to take him there. But regardless of that, who are you Who are you pitching after Craig Kimball? Jeremy Jeffress? Ooh, Rowan Wick? Is, I mean, like, Jeffress
1: was like very good just in 2018. He didn't have a great 2019, but he's I- I'm not convinced he's a bad he's a
0: bad guy. But pitcher. even if Jeremy Jeffers next season has the single best season of his career, this bullpen's still garbage. Because they have a closer who may be good. They have a setup man who even if he's amazing, no one can get the ball to him. The bullpen's a disaster. It's not one that's suited to win a division this razor thin in margins because your bullpen decides those super close games. I can't believe in him. That's all I got to say.
1: I just think the pitching is not as bad as you're making it out. I actually think the, the starting rotation is arguably like, for some teams, it would be a strength. I, I think that one through four is pretty good. And I don't think Tyler Chatwood is like a massive disaster to have as your fifth starter. He's right?
0: been in the past. Yeah, what's, but what's different about it this year?
1: I mean, I, I just think, you know, he's got pretty good stuff. He's going to walk a lot of guys, but I, I think you can get by with him as your fifth starter. But, like, and, and then the bullpen, like, I mean, Kimbrell, I think last year was a bit of an anomaly because it took so long for him to make his debut. But I don't think he's shown anything to make you think, like, he's not still a fairly elite
0: yeah. Bullpen, yeah.
1: bullpen arm. And I think some of the depth guys in this bullpen, you know, Rowan Wick, Jeremy
0: Jeffries, are not. No, those aren't depth guys. Those are literally the top two guys out of the pen behind Craig Kimbrell. Their depth guys are awful. It's Trevor McGill. It's Dan Winkler. It's Ryan Tepera. No, that you can't win this division with that. You, Especially the way they play baseball today. You need someone to throw the sixth. You need someone to throw the seventh every single day, pretty much. I don't think they do it. I'll be curious to hear, Sam. So my player watch is kind of super obvious. It's Javier Baez. He's the most fun player in baseball to watch play the game. He's
1: quite literally fun to watch. He's yeah.
0: got a tattoo of the logo on the I, back of his neck. I will,
1: I will add a very poorly done tattoo. <laughs> yeah, it is
0: pretty bad, but yeah. I we love the sentiment. He's so fun. He makes plays that, like, before he started playing the game, we didn't know existed, right? I've never seen a tag like Javier Baez tags before he came into the league.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it did right? It's, it's an incredibly, like, he is by definition the player to watch in right. the majors, maybe the most exciting player in baseball. So uh, I went a little more depth with my player to watch, okay. although I think. Javi I was Baez, hoping you did. I was hoping uh, you I think did. Javi Baez is quite literally the correct answer. Right. Uh, but the player I went with is Nico Horner, who I think maybe a lot of people don't know much about and I think I expect him to probably get the majority of plate appearances at second for the Cubs this year. He'll probably maybe share some time with Jason Kipnis. Uh, But, okay, so Nico Horner was the Cubs' 2018 first-round pick. He played a bit at the end of the season last year. He had 82 plate appearances. He was certainly not great. His WRC Plus was only 86, which means he was, you know, a solidly below-average hitter. But there are a couple things I like about his game. One is that he doesn't strike out much. He only had a thirteen uh, percent uh, K percentage last year, which is far below the league average. Uh, and his K percentages were even lower in the minor leagues. Um, one thing that he was able to do in the minor leagues is combine this great contact skill with the ability to have decent plate appear, uh, plate discipline and walk as well. But that that skill sort of won the way in the majors. He barely walked. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think he's going to be a great player if he doesn't rediscover that plate discipline that he had in double A. But I think if he can rediscover some plate discipline, keep getting the bat on the ball, he can be a solid major league hitter, average, maybe slightly above average, play a pretty decent glove at second base. And the reason I want to point him out as a player to watch is because you might pinpoint second base as being maybe a weakness for the Cubs in this deep lineup that I was talking about, right. but if Nico Horner has a big of a breakout season, then I think this lineup is just going to be really have no clear holes in it.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I just don't really see it in in Horner's profile. I know like people have been really hot on him as a rookie, but like if you look at what he did through the minors, sure he put up you know high WRC pluses, but then you look a little closer and you realize they're all in extremely small sample sizes. The only thing he had in a reasonable sample size was 70 games. He was 117, so, you know, 17% above average. That would be really good for him. But when you look at his batted ball profile, you know, you tend to see that his BABIP was 311 that year, which is not unsustainable, but it's a little high. And then you look at the players he's similar to in batted ball profile, and you're looking at guys like Tony Walters, Tim LaCastro, Colton Wong, Brock Holt, those are fine players in the major leagues, but they're not the star the Cubs are hoping Nico Horner is. So I, like you, Sam, will be interested to see whether he can come up to the majors and really find a way to take his swing to the next level, because he didn't show anything extraordinary in the minors in terms of the bat, I think.
1: Okay, so so if I had to summarize our thoughts on the Cubs, it's basically that we both like the lineup a lot. I think the pitching's good enough to support that lineup and get them to the top of the division. And you simply don't.
0: I simply don't think that they can win games with that bullpen, though. No. So,
1: so let's get to my number two, and they're actually your number four, and that's the Reds. Yeah. So the reason I like the Reds a lot, and I think people are probably pretty surprised to hear me putting them at number two, but I just absolutely love the Reds starting pitchers. Um, that's
0: just, that's crazy.
1: I, I think I am extremely high on Luis Castillo. He's a guy whose stuff I absolutely love. And he's a
0: stud, no and doubt. I,
1: I, I could literally see him winning. I wouldn't be that surprised to see him win the Cy Young this year. And then you look at a guy in Sonny Gray who had a really nice bounce-back season right. and sort of convinced me that he's gotten his career back on track. I expect him to be a very good pitcher for the, for the Reds this year. And then finally a guy like Trevor Bauer who two years ago was arguably, you know, in yeah. contention for the AL Cy Young. Yeah. He had a bit of a step back last year, but if he can sort of regain that 2018 form, then we're talking about maybe one of the best top threes in the league. Right. And then, you know, you might say you don't love four and five, but Wade Miley, despite his disastrous end to the season last year, has still shown himself to be a good innings eater for a lot of years. And Anthony DiSquafani, you know, you can have worse as your fifth starter. I I think he's a decent pitcher, and to go along with that top three, I just— Absolutely love the Reds rotation, and that's why I'm hot on them.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that, and I think that makes sense for sure, Sam. That Reds team is extremely, extremely deep in a lot of ways, and that actually goes to my strength, which was depth on this squad. And I, I know I can sound like a broken record with some of these teams, but we see general managers all around the league becoming smarter and smarter. And so when you look, their catcher maybe summarizes the way this front office has operated the best, He's not a great hitter, but he provides a ton of value behind the plate, Tucker Barnhart, in the way he receives the ball. Joey Votto is coming down from the peak of his career, but he still finds a way to provide value by getting on base. Mike Moustakis is a traditional banger. Freddie Galvis is unbelievable with the glove. They love him over there at third. Eugenio Suarez is an unsung hero of this league. And then in the outfield, you have some combination of Jesse Winker, Nicholas Castellanos, Shogo Akiyama, Nick Senzel, and Aristotle Sakino. That's really strong. They're really strong. They're really deep all over. And Sam mentioned their starting pitching is good. My knock on them and why I can't go and take them right now is, again, the margins in this division are razor thin and they don't have the experience. They don't have clubhouse leadership and they don't have reliable players because here's the deal. I love Trevor Bauer. He's my player to watch, and I'm about to watch him right now and, and let you all see how this is going. 2018, absolute stud. A FIP of 244. And for those of you who don't know, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about FIP?
1: Yeah, so FIP is something that's called fielding independent pitching. It's a way that people in advanced analytics like to evaluate pitchers that takes out the variable of how good their defense is. So it basically says a pitcher has no control over how good the defense behind them is. So let's look at only the things they can control, which are, you know, how many people they're striking out, how many walks they have, and giving up home runs. So uh, a FIP is then adjusted to be on the same scale as ERA. Yeah. So a good FIP is also, is what you think a good ERA is. And, you know, we'll go more into detail in FIP and other fielding independent pitching stats, in a later episode. Next
0: couple of episodes, we'll definitely do a deep dive. Yeah. But so he had this great, great FIP, which indicates greatness. But then you actually look a little deeper and you realize he's never, ever done it at any other point in his career. He was 244 in 2018, but his second best season was 2017, where he was 388. The only thing encouraging about 2018 was it looked like he was trending in the right direction. He was getting better and better, and he finally broke out. But that trend reversed, and he jumped back up to 4-3-4 in 2019. So he's a big question mark for me. What type of pitcher is he? Sonny Gray. He hasn't really been able to pitch. Every other year, he has a full season. And when he does, he's hit or miss. His ERA jumps between 2 and 6. We don't know what we're getting out of him. Luis Castillo has some of the nastiest stuff in baseball. But I don't know what I'm getting out of him. And the same goes for the lineup. So... Yes, I like what I see on paper. But I don't have the ability to believe it's for real because I've never seen it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's totally fair. It's actually interesting like you seem actually a little higher on their lineup than I am. I think there are a lot of interesting pieces in that lineup, but if I'm talking about players that I'm sort of, you know, slam dunk thinking are going to be above average major league players next year, really the only one I think is is Suarez. Yeah. I mean, Mustakis is someone who I think has been consistently overrated in this league. I think he is I
0: think you consistently underrated him.
1: I mean, I think he's been an average to slightly above average player for a while. I don't think he's ever been an all-star level player, which I think he's been triggered at for a while triggered as for a while. Vado is a guy who unfortunately looks like he's starting to decline. He's been one of my favorite players in the league for a long time. Just a really interesting guy the absolute on-base king. But actually, uh, you know, you started to mention Bauer. He's also my player to watch. I think one interesting thing to note about Bauer is something that's relevant to this podcast. He's one of the most forward-thinking pitchers yeah, out there in yeah. the game. So, so Bauer's really led this revolution in pitching over the last few years of starting to look at sort of more scientific concepts like spin rate, spin mm-hmm. rate. Uh, Tunneling with 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 pitching and really designing pitches that have the movement you want and and he's he's really not only has he taken up the this revolution, but he's also been sharing it with fans Mm -hmm. and other people in the game by being very active on social media such as Twitter. He's always a very controversial figure, whether it's accusing the Astros of cheating (laughs) or getting in political arguments on Twitter. I think he's a really interesting guy. That you know add some excitement to baseball, where baseball and and the and the MLB in general don't maybe have some of the, you know the feuds and the excitement of some other leagues like the NBA. And I think Bauer's a good guy for pushing that forward and bringing some fun into the game.
0: Yeah, I think he's the exact type of guy we need in this game. The ones who kind of show us the human side of the player, because baseball's been such a buttoned-up sport for so long. And I think that. People, especially of our age bracket, you know, twenty to thirty-five or forty, like we really appreciate seeing someone love what they do, and that's true with the kids play. Let the kids play. But Sam's exactly right. Trevor Bauer is so so interesting because he has been part of the pioneering movement of using these high-speed cameras and this uh, motion detecting software and hardware to figure out where his release point is, how it affects the horizontal and vertical break on his balls. And he'll go into the lab and he'll actually develop a pitch. So I'm looking on his baseball savant page right now. He has six different pitches that he throws over 3% of the time. His sinker, he only throws about 3.7. Everything else he throws over 7% of the time, leading with the four-seamer at 38.8. But you can see, just looking at these heat maps. Trevor Bauer as a righty, right? Likes to come across his body and move into a left-handed batter or away from a right-handed batter. You can literally see this pitch development and thought process by looking at the pitches he's developed. And to me that's just so cool to be able to see. So Bauer is a controversial figure. He'll ruffle people's feathers. But in the end of the day, I think this guy is really good for the game of baseball right now.
1: Yeah. So then I think at the end of the day too, our disagreement with the Reds is pretty similar to our disagreement with the Cubs. I think their pitching staff is amazing. And I think you think it's just good. And I think that's the difference between me putting them at two and and you putting them at four. Because again, this is a division where the margins are razor thin. So just slight different evaluations of different position groups on the teams are going to lead to different positioning in the division. So with that, let's move to my number three, who's actually your number one, and that's the St. Louis Cardinals. So tell me, Aaron, like, what do you like so much about the St. Louis Cardinals? Why do you see them winning this division?
0: Well, look, to me, this Cardinals team is kind of the prototypical formula to winning a tough division like this. And what I mean by that is everywhere on the diamond, they have some combination of skill, upside, and experience. They got Yachty behind the dish. You can't really ask for more. They got Paul Goldschmidt at first base, who we'll discuss extensively, but despite all the noise, is still a great fielder and a terrific hitter. Colton Wong at second base has been robbed of multiple gold gloves. Paul DeYoung is so underrated at shortstop. I It's not really fair. Yeah. Matt Carpenter at third base is the hole in the lineup, but I believe Tommy Edmond takes that spot sooner rather than later. And then the outfield of Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader, and Dexter Fowler screams boomer bust. But what's important here is that when you go into the pitching staff, this is the only team that can really support that type of question mark in the lineup in this division.
1: I think the Cubs have a better starting pitching staff than the Cardinals. The
0: Cubs have a marginally better starting pitching staff than the Cardinals. But in terms of value for total innings... The Cardinals have better value because they have more solid relievers who are going to throw more innings than the Cubs do. The Cubs are going to eat their starters alive. They can't throw anything to the bullpen. The Cardinals are happy to give Austin Gomber two innings in the fifth. They're happy to hand the ball to Daniel Ponce de Leon. They are absolutely thrilled to see Andrew Miller, Tyler Webb, John Bebria, or Giovanni Gallegos get on the hill. Their bullpen goes deep. Their starters run extremely deep. Some of those guys I mentioned also are going to get innings as starters. Miles Michaelis is projecting as their five right now. They're solid. They're, n- there's nothing flashy here, and that's my weakness, is that they don't have star power, but this team is solid. Yeah,
1: and I, I, think, I think you nailed it on the head in that that was also my strength for the Cardinals, that they are just sort of solid throughout, but I think you're sort of underselling how much of a weakness their lack of star power is. And I'll put it this way, you know, there's not really anyone on the Cardinals outside of maybe Jack Flaherty and Paul Goldschmidt that I would currently even put in the category of, you know, someone I'd expect to make an all-star team this year. Um, yeah. And Paul Goldschmidt is actually an interesting case because I think he's clearly at this point still probably the best position player on the Cardinals. Maybe you'd say Paul Paul DeYoung. But, but Goldschmidt is a guy who I've loved throughout his career. He's, he's really been one of the you know, top five to ten hitters in baseball for oh, yeah. a long time now, probably six or seven years, really since he stepped foot in the league. But I think there's something to point out, which is that Goldschmidt had his worst season of his career last year. And I think it went a little under the radar because the Cardinals still were able to you know, come through in that division. And people didn't really identify that much that Goldschmidt was letting them down a bit but goldschmidt after being over 140 in wrc plus you know 6 of the last 7 years only had a 116 wrc plus last year and you know if you're a goldie fan you're hoping this is just a blip and he goes back to being awesome again next year but you know goldie's a guy who's getting up there in age he's 32 now and one thing to notice with with a lot of these you know, especially like first base type players in the league, is that when they decline, they decline fast. And Albert Pujols is the real big example of that. It's like one year where they're a little worse than they used to be could be could be the precursor to another year where they're practically unplayable because, you know, so much of their game depends on that bat speed. And if they just lose a half second, suddenly it's over. So while you see all these reliable veterans... I see a lot of older guys that have a lot of question marks. I mean, there's Goldschmidt. What's Matt Carpenter still giving you? Is Yadi still a player that's going to be able to catch all these innings and, and, and play decently? So, you know, I agree with you that they're solid throughout, but I think, you know, a, a lot of these things that make them solid could start to crumble. And if, if some of these veterans don't live up to what they've been in the past, then I can see them falling in this division.
0: Well, and again, I can see that. That is a possibility. But my feeling about them is with the way that organizations run, with the minor league depth they have, and with just the wealth of both positional players and arms who can both start and relieve, I, I think this team has the ability to do it. And there are just a bunch of exciting people on this team. You mentioned Goldie. And by the way, I do just want to say, Yes, Goldie had a 116 WRC plus last year, and that's a very, very good measure of his value as a hitter. But you can't take away the fact that he had 34 bombs, he scored 97 times, and he drove in 97 runs. When you're talking pure run creation, you're talking numbers, he did it. When you're talking about how well it compared against what other people in the league he did, he didn't excel compared to the rest of the league as he has in the past. But he still hit the ball hard. He still had an ISO above 200. You, he, he, this is not the end of the world, as you put it, but I will admit, yeah. I've watched him for many years. He wasn't the same hitter last year, and it scares me a little
1: bit. Yeah, but and also, though, if you're a Goldschmidt optimist, it's not like he was striking out much more than normal or, or walking that much less than he had in the past. It was definitely less. Right. It wasn't that much less. So it could just be that, you know, he had a, he had a bit of a down season, and, and the underlying skill's there still, and he's going to bounce back. But yeah. I'm just saying, here's a big warning sign. We've seen it happen to players before. I think he's a really interesting test case this year. Is this it for him, or is he going to have a career yeah. in Suns?
0: Well, a guy, another guy who's actually my player to watch, who I could kind of see blooming into a star, although I could also see him falling out of baseball in the next couple of years. He's a big time hit or miss guy. Here is Harrison Bader. I don't know if you guys have watched him play, but. He's got long, blonde flow. He runs for it. He lays out every time for the ball. He's super fun to watch. He's jacked as heck, and he drills the ball. And I'm excited to see what he can do because in 2019, he was a pretty bad hitter. He was a great defender, but he was a pretty bad hitter. And in 2018, he was a pretty decent hitter and a great defender. Yeah, and the difference is a factor of two in his WAR. So is he a four win player or is he a one and a half win player? Yeah, and
1: I I think Harrison Bader is a great example of how you can accumulate uh, you know wins above replacement in different parts of uh, of of the game. So like we talked about how there's this offensive and defensive component to WAR, and Harrison Bader is a guy who can just absolutely snag fly balls Mm -hmm. out there in center, and he's really contributing to his value for the Cardinals by having this elite defensive game and when you are that good of a defender all it really takes is being a slightly above average hitter to really be a borderline star you know if you can if you can save a lot of runs in the field and then just be passable at the plate that that's the recipe for someone who's going to be you know a great serviceable player in this league but again i think you know as you said if Bader is more the hitter he was in 2018 he's going to be a really nice piece for the Cardinals moving forward. But if he's more the hitter he was last year, then he's a guy that could play himself out of the league.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, but that makes sense. So basically Sam and I just have flipped opinions. We agree on the core tenets of these teams, but we disagree at the margins. In this case, it's the lineup, I really think. It's the just overall oomph that the lineup and the rotation have. I think that guys like Flaherty and Goldie are locks to get it done this year. Sam needs to see it to believe it.
1: I believe in Flaherty. I, but we can talk about him that much, but I, I think Flaherty is going to be, you know, great. So let, let's move to my number four and your number two, which is the Brewers. So so what do you like about the Brewers? Because I'm clearly, you know, not as confident in them as you are. Right. Well, so for
0: me, the Brewers just come down to depth. They have so many... Players on this team that other teams would love to have in their lineup. There they have two real catchers, they have five real first basemen, they have four real second basemen, they have three real short steps. they have three real third basemen, and they have six outfielders to pick and choose from. And then you go into their rotation, and they have about eight or nine guys who could potentially be real-life starters this year. Then you go into their bullpen. All the way through, they have guys who know how to get out. So at the end of the day, for the Brewers, for me, it's like nothing's great. I don't love anything except Yelich on this team. But everything works. And that's the team they've had for so, so long now. If you remember, I mean— Craig Council has just been having this team absolutely purr for years now. Under his leadership, they've won 89, 96, 86 games the last three years with lineups I hated. I thought they were awful. And so I'm done being wrong about them. They, I, they're going to keep doing it. They have enough there. Craig Council is going to find a way to win.
1: Maybe they're going to fool me again. But, you know, I, I just don't agree with, with you in, like, class in like sort of characterizing them as a team with depth like yeah in some sense they're a team with depth but sort of after Yelich, there's n- there's no real like slam dunk player on this team and actually my strength for the team was not their depth but it was christian yellich and like Yelich, i think is, is is an interesting guy to talk about because like so last week we did the al west and i said you know the the angels strength was star power But I almost should have just said that their strength was Mike Trout because, you know, we talked about the stat war this year and it sort of correlates with how many wins this player was worth for your team. So someone like Traver Yelich, who can put up like eight wins above replacement, is really adding so much value to your team when you're a true superstar like that. Because remember, someone who's like a borderline all-star is putting up like four wins above replacement for a team. So when we talk about someone who's a superstar, like Troutor Yelich getting 8, 9, 10 wins yeah. above replacement, we're literally about talking about someone who's like worth two all-stars for the team. Right. So having a player like this is so valuable. But then after Yelich, I mean, you're right that there are a lot of guys in their lineup that sort of belong in the big leagues. They belong there as people who have been solid players in the past, who, who are good depth pieces to having an organization. But a lot of these guys are not people that I'm psyched about having as my actual starter at these positions. They're more people that I would like to fill out a bench, but not necessarily be the starter. Because after, uh, after Jelic, if I look at the lineup, you know, I think Teston Hira is going to be a great player in this league, and I have him as my player to watch. I think Lorenzo Kane has done it for long enough, can still field really well, you know, in center— But after that, there's really just no one in that lineup that I think you can rely on that much. If you look at their starters, like, yeah, they have a lot of guys that I think can eat innings. But, I mean, Brandon Woodruff's their ace. And, I mean, I don't think that's a great place to be.
0: Well, yeah. So, I mean, for my weakness, I have run producers and aces. And that's exactly what you're getting at. Like, yes, they don't have anybody on their staff. I'm like, oh, thank God he's up again. Brandon is a great pitcher, but you know what I mean. He's not a he's not a top tier ace. And then beyond Yelich, it gets tough. I mean, there's only like four guys on the lineup who FanGraphs has projected to be positive run producers. But the thing is, is like I I'm I think Justin Smoke is a sure bet at first base. They're going to be able to platoon him with with success because they have a righty first baseman as well. I think Avisel Garcia is going to have a two-war season probably this year. He's going to do it with the bat and the glove. I think Lorenzo Kane is still going to be valuable one way or the other. Obviously, Kessin here. Luis Urias has high upside. Ryan Braun is definitely going to do it with the bat. They've got enough, and they've got the manager, and they've got the experience fighting against teams who on paper are better than they are and coming out on top. I think they do it again yeah year.
1: so yeah i guess our disagreement here is sort of you like the what the brewers have done over the last few years has convinced them that they can sort of be better than the son of their parts i think that's a concept that i'm always quite skeptical of of course. and i think you know i i'm more likely to attribute them doing well last year to just being a bit lucky compared to compared to actually have found the found this this magic formula to being better than some of their parts. But you know, I can definitely I wouldn't be shocked to see the Brewers winning a wild card or the division this year. And I think if they were to have a great season, one big piece of it would be Keston Hura. Yeah. I, I think, I think so. he needs to continue his breakout from his rookie year. And I think Keston's a really interesting guy to talk about because, you know, he played about, you know, half a season last year, mm-hmm. 84 games, 350 plague appearances. And I don't think people really realized how good he was. He was really I mean, good. I mean, I think basically outside of P. Alonso and Fernando Tatis and Jorgen Alvarez, Keston was probably the best hitting rookie last year. Yeah, he's and, probably
0: exactly.
1: And, 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 and he had a one hundred forty WRC plus last year, which you know, if he if he does that every year, he's going to be a perennial All Star. But I think there are also some warning signs to point out to point to, which is that his batting average on balls in play last year which is basically looking at how likely you are to get a hit when, when you didn't strike out, What was 400. And this is a number that is virtually
0: unsustainable. You will never see someone running a 400 BABIP every season. But, Sam, you look in his past. He had a 389 BABIP over 57 games in AAA. He was 386 over 50 games in high A. He was 422 and 500 between 45 games in rookie ball and low A. He's done it his whole career. Yeah, so
1: I mean, it's certainly possible that he's a guy that continues to run high bad-ups. I'd, I mean, even the guys who are like absolutely elite in bad are usually running something like 360 or 370. Yeah. 400 so, is unsustain-
0: yeah. unsustainable, but when you say that, people may think, oh, well, he should drop towards 300. No, this Profiles is a hitter who's more likely to drop to about 360. And what that tells me, Sam, is that he's a guy who hits a lot of line drives. He's got a flat that, swing. He drives the ball hard.
1: That's definitely true. But like, you know, he he's the profile. Like, and I think he's going to be a really good player in this league. So so don't let it seem like I don't like testing. I'm just saying, let's not just sign him up for for you know having a 140 WRC plus
0: next year. No, I, no, God, no. And to to hammer that point home, I mean, one of the projection systems called the Bat has him at 98 WRC+. They think he's going to be worse than league average. Everyone else has him at least 10% higher, but the bat has him 2% below league average. And that's kind of what Sam's pointing to. Is that sustainable? Is that Babib sustainable? Is what he did last year, for real. I can't wait to see, because he's a fun profile. Tall guy, playing second base, swings a mean bat. But unfortunately... We move on from four great teams fighting for a top spot. It I'd say out. I'd say
1: four good teams, which is what makes it an interesting division.
0: Yeah, sorry, four good teams. No, yeah. oh, great teams, um, but it makes it a very interesting division. But then, unfortunately, you get to the bottom. You got the Pirates. They really are in a different tier than these other four teams. And what did you think, Sam, that they did well? Because I already know you're going to tell me they did everything wrong. So give me something they might do. Yeah,
1: so if I had to point to one strength for the Pirates, I would point to sort of the top of their staff, Yeah. their starters. I think sort of if you look Mm -hmm. at their top four, we've got Archer, Joe Musgrove, Trevor Williams, and Mitch Mm -hmm. Keller. I think those are four solid pitchers. And again... You know, I wouldn't be identifying this as a strength of like the Astros or something. In fact, you know, I identified last last episode the Astros starting pitching as a weakness.
0: And it's I think better it's, than this rotation. I think it's better yeah. than
1: this rotation. So again, with sort of teams that are going to be at the bottom of their divisions, st- their strengths are going to be other teams' weaknesses. But you know, if I had to point to the strongest part of the Pirates, that's what I would
0: point yeah. to. Yeah, I agree. I have their strength as one hundred percent their rotation. Their weakness, unfortunately, is runs, but it's really everything else. I mean, a guy maybe that you don't want to sleep on is John Ryan Murphy. Came over from the D-backs. No one's projecting him to catch a lot of games. But I don't really know who else they're going to put behind the dish. Jacob Stallings and Luke Maley are there. Both interesting options. But I think John Ryan Murphy's got the best bat out of the three of them. You might see something from him. Obviously, Josh Bell had an absolute ripper. Absolute Ripper. Of a season last year, of, Just,
1: of of a first half. For sure, I was going to say, yeah.
0: despite the fact that in the first half his OPS was over a thousand, and then the second half it was below eight hundred. So you do hate to see that. But in general, yeah, I guess they can swing it a little bit. There's some interesting guys here, but yeah. their rotation is the only thing that even gives us any
1: hope. Yeah, and I think Pirates fans have a lot to be pessimistic about. You know, their team's not great they gave away two studs in Austin Meadows and Tyler Glass now to the Rays. For, Their team
0: would be an interesting option yeah. this year if it had Meadows and and Glass. Yeah,
1: for for Archer who is, you know, not been great since no. coming over, but I not. think if you're if you're an optimist for the Pirates and you're looking for something to look forward to, my player to watch for them is Brian Reynolds. A- and Brian Reynolds, I think ended up third in the NL rookie of the year voting. I believe last so, year yeah, behind uh, Alonso and Tatís. And he's a guy who, you know, wasn't quite as good as Kestin Hira in the games, you know, of you know, on a per at bat basis. But he played almost a full season last year and ran a one thirty WRC plus, right. which is just—I mean, he hit over three hundred. He's hit at every level through the minors. Yeah, always gets on base. Always, you know, is able to, you know, get get his back on the ball. And he's a guy that sort of didn't have much shine on him as a prospect. He seemed to come out of nowhere last year. But if he's able to hit the same way he did last year, we're talking about an emerging young star
0: in the game. But I don't understand it, Sam. Like, for these episodes and just for our own, you know, enjoyment, we've been looking at a lot of fan pages, especially of young guys. And this is a guy who has played more games in the minor leagues than, like, almost anyone we've talked about so far. We talked about Nico Horner, who's played, like, 70 or 80 games in the minor leagues. This guy has played, like, six, five full seasons, basically. Five, four and a half full seasons in the minor leagues. Every time he does, he hits over 300. Every time he does, he has a WRC plus over 120. Every time he does, somehow his BABIP is above 360. This is actually a guy who more so than Keston Hira, I believe, is a 360 BABIP hitter because he hits for average. If he's going to swing at the ball, that's his game. It's not as much Keston's game. If he's going to swing at the ball, he's going to put it in play, and he's developing a little bit of power. And in today's game, you can go from the minors to the majors and gain a significant amount of power very easily. If he does so... He's a top fifteen yeah. hitter in baseball immediately, and I
1: think Brian Reynolds is is an interesting profile of the type of hitter that's been emerging more and more in baseball mm. the, the, recently, which is sort of the type of guy that just consistently performs in the minors but doesn't really have like a pre- any projectable skill. Right. Like you don't see great improvement in the majors, but like when they get to the majors, they just keep getting it done and they show the ability to adjust to major league pitching. And the, and the performance level is just there because they know how to hit. Mm-hmm. I think another great example of that is a man near and dear to my heart, Jeff McNeil. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. someone got who, up
0: really late in his career, yeah. but he just knew who he was. But,
1: but he just he just hit at every level of the minors, and when he finally got a chance in the majors, he kept hitting. Right. You know, so I, I you know, I really like players like that who you know don't quite have the same pro- prospect shine, but you know, just know how to play the game. And by doing all the little things right, can just turn into really good major
0: league right. players. So between him and Josh Bell and the rotation, I think for Pirates fans out there, there's something to look forward to. But perhaps this year isn't your year. Um, if you guys disagree with us, which I'm sure you do, make sure to find us on Twitter at TheAlonzoBet. Leave us your comments. Let us know just how wrong we were. If you leave us something funny or witty, maybe we'll read it on the next pod. Thank you for joining us. From your host at the Alonzo Bet, I'm Aaron.
1: And I'm Sam, but actually, jump the gun here, we still have to do over-unders.
0: I do this every time, alright? We might as well make it a segment, Sam. Tell me what we got for over-unders.
1: Okay. Let's start with the Cubs, 86.
0: Wow. Uh, I'd like to be consistent with what I chose, but instead I'm going to hedge, so at least I am right on one thing. I'm taking over.
1: I went over, too. I mean, yeah. I've them di- winning the division. Yeah, that makes not sense. Winning
0: the 86. Reds, 83 and a half. Under.
1: I've got them over. That pitching do. staff so good. Cards, yeah. 88 and a half.
0: Over. Someone's got to win 90 games to win the division.
1: I've got them under.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Brewers, 83 and a half. That one's easy over. I'm going under on that. I just don't like the Brewers outside of yellow. Yeah. Uh, Pirates, uh, 70 and a half.
0: Boy, that's really, really tough. I just... That's the hardest one. I don't know if it's mathematically possible, but I'm going to hopefully say over. I don't think this team is a 60-win team, even if it were 69 wins. Like, I don't think so. Um, I like what they have going, and I think that they can be coached into winning 70 games. I think... I guess 70 yeah. is under, yeah. but... I, I,
1: I th- I'm I going a little under. I just think the rest of the, the rest of the division is good enough that they're not going to win a lot of the games yeah. in division. But, um... Yeah, we'll see. I think this is going to be one of the most fun divisions this, Absolutely. this season.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And we hope the season gets played, which we <laughs> yeah. don't know, but we hope so.
1: Okay, now let's actually sign off. You sure is, you
0: don't you don't want to take one more false take here? We could just for fun. All right.
1: Yeah, I don't have any other segment. Of this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so let's uh, you know, this has been a really fun second episode. We'll be back to you in episode three with another division yep. preview um so make sure to tune back in to the next episode of the alonzo bet but this time really actually signing off this is sam
0: and i'm aaron thank you guys for joining us we'll see you next week